Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone, Tim Sylvie here. Yesterday, I headed to London to the offices of the race media to chat with Andrew Vandenberg. Andrew is the former editor-in-chief at Autosport. He was also one of the very first people to work at Formula E alongside Alejandro Agag during the formation of the series. He's the founder of The Race, which has just gone over 1 million YouTube subscribers. He's also the man that bought WTF1 and tripled its fan base before Matt and Tommy moved on to Pastors New. I've got to know Andrew pretty well over the last few months. He invited me for a couple of non-alcoholic beers one evening when we were both trying to stay off the booze. And he sold me the concept of a new F1 talent management company. A few weeks later, we launched WTF1 Talent Together, which now has a roster of nearly 20 F1 content creators from all over the world. But despite that, as Andrew and I talk, I find out things I didn't know about him, his life, his career and opinions. He lost his dad when he was very young, which perhaps points to his ability to be a leader and take on responsibility in his adult life. He speaks openly and honestly about working at Autosport, the early days of Formula E, how he came to launch the race and the day it almost fell apart before it began, with COVID collapsing Formula One in Melbourne on the weekend they were launching the new company to F1's media. It recovered, of course, and has gone from strength to strength. Andrew is a charismatic, honest an intelligent individual, and a big thanks to him for his time. Before we get going, a quick thanks to our show sponsor, Paul Oz, the amazing F1 artist. Head to pauloz.com to check out his work, and we'll be emailing another winner of our Paul Oz giveaway. As we didn't hear from our first one, she sadly misses out, and we'll be giving Paul's center painting away to someone new. Right, back to Andrew. Enjoy the show. Andrew, a very warm welcome to the Motormouth podcast. First, I've got to say a big congratulations. Um, you've just hit a significant milestone with the race, a million YouTube subs. Well done, you. Yeah, thank you very much. Although the last 20,000 did seem to go on for quite a long time. I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. That's a good milestone, though, isn't it? I mean, what, what's the plan for, uh, for the race and from a YouTube perspective? I guess just keep going bigger and better and reach that two million mark. Well, I, I won't be paying as quite a close attention as to the number count for a little while, that's for sure. Yeah, on, on, onwards and upwards, you know. We had a 
when we set it up, video was always going to be a core component of that. And to get to a million in just over three years, mm. amazing. Uh, especially, you know, we rocked it up during uh, 21 when uh, Formula One was exciting, if anyone can remember that. Uh, and obviously, it's been, a, it's been a bit of a slog over the last season, but I'm optimistic that next year we'll, we'll see us reignite that again. Excellent. Well, look, we'll come on to that in a minute, but let's go back in time. Mm. And um, I need to caveat with our listeners that I do know you. We are working together, but I don't know your past. No. So we're going to unearth it. Um, and it will be as enlightening for me as it is for our listeners. So let's go back in time far back into your childhood, what's made you into the individual you are today? You're a founder, a leader, an expert in your niche of Formula One and other motorsport. Um, what's made you the type of person that can embrace those things today? Yeah, it's a really uh, interesting question when I saw it was on there. So I'm not sure I really, really know how to answer that because I guess a lot of people in those positions do things more instinctively rather than spend a lot of time analysing their means and motives for doing it. They sort of get up and go and, and do that. Um, I always um, somehow just sort of fell into leadershipy type things. So I, I remember being a sixer at Cubs, even though I don't, I don't think I ever asked to be. I just sort of did. And then uh, there was a quite severely um, handicapped the guy there and they put him in my six because I thought I was sort of I was like, who, who gave this idea that I was this responsible person <laughs> but um, some, somehow it sort of came there I was a uh, uh, head boy in my class at school although again I, sort of by default wasn't I there was an election ever I just decided that I would do it um, I did a postgraduate um, journalism course and there was a magazine there and I was made the editor of that again you know without really sort of campaigning to become it so I'm not sure I've ever really sat down and thought about what made me uh who I am although I would say um my dad died when I was quite quite young and most of the family's sort of support and not just that actually in the school and everything went towards my sisters but younger than me and my mum and I was sort of just left alone to work mm. out how things worked um, and so I've always, I've always been quite quick on the uptake and working out the best thing to do in the situation that, you know, without having, having to be told. Yeah. Do you, but do you enjoy that role? Like if you're falling into that position more often than not, and, and it's not by design, do you relish once you're in those positions? And more often than not, yeah. Although every now and again, it would be quite nice to just, you know, sit back and let somebody else drive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, motorsport, when did that first come on the radar? Was there any sign of it in the family before you? So, um, my, uh, my, one of my very, very earliest memories is uh, being at my dad's mum's house, my nan's, and uh, I think it was the 1980 Argentine Grand Prix, although it was, it's possible that it was the Brazilian Grand Prix. The reason that that's is that there was a Ligier front row lockout. Yeah. They did that in both those races, so it's... It's possible it could be either of them. Anyway, I caused a stink because she had a black and white telly and I wanted to go home and watch it in colour. <laughs> and I got a big old telling off from my dad about this for being a bit disrespectful. And I would have been five or six. Right. Um, probably wouldn't have got to my sixth birthday. So I'd have been five years old at the time. So that's how long uh, I've been into sort of Formula One. But I've been into cars from a lot longer than that. Um, my mum tells this story about when I was barely old enough to talk 
and the sort of community worker came around just to check I was all right. And they were, hello, Andrew. Like, oh, hello, you're the lady with the Morris. <laughs> and, I, and I knew what car she had when I was, you know, 18 months, two years, whatever it was, wow. old enough to talk. So um, my dad uh, was a precision engineer, he used to make gears, and one of their clients was Lola. So mm-hmm. he used to help with making steering racks and stuff for them. Uh, he was way more interested in cars than he was motorsport, but he was quite happy to sit down next to me and watch a Grand Prix. It wasn't too much of a hard So, So the cars came first. So what was your first road car? Oh, God. I had a terrible uh, metallic brown Mark 1 Vauxhall Astra. Vauxhall Astra. Yeah, KL, KLF 133X. <laughs> There's no way it's still on the road because it was scrapped uh, when I got rid of it. So when I, when I was growing up, the, I don't think I ever had an Astra. I had a Nova. Remember the Vauxhall Nova? Yeah, yeah. I had one of those, and it was sort of mandatory to, to cut holes in the parcel shelf and stick my six yeah. by nine speakers yeah, in. You I have all that. of that. Yeah, yeah. Electric aerial. Electric aerial. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Electric aerial and the greatest air horn. Oh. It didn't have much, but it had a great horn. That, I mean, nothing wrong with a great horn. <laughs> Absolutely. So what came after that? What was, the, what was the run of cars after that? So then I had a... a an incredibly rubbish Fiat Strada. But whoever it was, the guy who had it before me had put on these great alloys and Pirelli tyres. Yeah. And it handled brilliantly. Um, it only had one window winder, but you could pull it off and put it on all the other windows. And winder. <laughs> it's just so weird. And there's a sketch, I think it was Michael McIntyre, where he does the action of winding a window. It's like, if you only know what this means, if, you, if you're of a certain age. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and then I went to uni after that, so I couldn't really afford a car. And then I moved back to London. For that. So I didn't have a car for ages and ages and ages. So the next car I owned was a, a 1971 Triumph 2000, wow. which I used to euphemistically and realistically smoke around in, yeah. um, looking like I was a, a side character from an episode of Minder or something. <laughs> What's been your favourite? Uh, I had a um, A39 M5. Okay, oh, uh, nice. Yeah, it's yeah. a fabulous car that was. Yeah. Uh, and that, uh, unfortunately, sold when fatherhood dawned and I had to get uh, yeah. people carrying. Yeah, I did exactly the same thing. I, was, I had, when I met my wife, I had a, uh, I think I had a, uh, a Clio 172 and, a, and then a Honda S2000. Nice. And, which I loved, which the uneducated would call a hairdresser's car, which oh, is right. absolutely not. Right. And um, yeah, got with Chloe and then kids and then that disappeared pronto um, and went, what was the first big car we got? I think I managed to convince her to get a BMW um, X5 M Sport, which Good I work. thought I did well with. Yeah. And that lasted about six months because it cost about three million pounds to fill up and yeah. it, tires were about two grand. Um, but uh, no, I, I, then I went firmly into the dad camp and got a sc- seven-seater Skoda. But, you know. Happened you know? to us all in the end. It does, yeah. I'm afraid. Now, you were the longest-serving editor of Autosport magazine, yep. um, other than its founder. Um, you were there, obviously, before social media took hold. Paint a picture for us. What was Autosport like um, back in the day when it was the leader of motorsport content and the social media world wasn't quite, hadn't quite taken hold yet? Well, it's probably best to do a, a little anecdote before that. So when I joined secondary school, we had the careers meeting, and they asked what I wanted to be, and I said the editor of Autosport. Really? Yeah. Wow. So it was, it was something I'd always aspired to, although later on down the line I decided I, I didn't want to be a motorsport journalist because that would be doing the thing I loved. And so I've ended up doing it for almost 30 years. <laughs> um, it was, it was in, intimidating and amazing all at the same time. Any paddock you walked into... Um, and you'd go up to someone, they would want to talk to you because it was autosport. They, they absolutely, definitely read it, and their parents absolutely, definitely read it, and it was incredibly important to them to be in it. Um, 
And so to be, there was that and most support news and in each country, the, the sort of version of it where there was auto ebdo or um, uh, the various ones in, in other countries, but that was it. You know, there wasn't a, the massive competition there is now. Um, so it was really significant, but also there was this, this torch that was passed down about how to do things and do things properly, like structure and news writing, how reportage was done, how you would act in a paddock while you were doing yourself. I mean, the notion that you would take a selfie with a driver or anything. I mean, I have no memorabilia. I don't have an autograph or anything like that because, it, you know, you're there to do a job. Mm. And, you know, you're not there to be matey with the drivers. You're, you're there to report on what's going on. And you don't want to have your uh, opinion um, coloured by the, the relationship you might have with them. So while beyond really good uh, relations with them, not they, they weren't your friends. And that was, that was very clear. And obviously that's changed enormously now. And Autosport, for many years, was the leader. And then I remember, I can't remember, you'll know better than me, um, a few years ago when they, they went digital. Oh, no, they, they, didn't they hike the price of the magazine to something uh, ridiculous? <laughs> yeah, that was the, the day that happened was the day that I left. Was it? Yeah, the second time round. Um, yeah, 10.99 That's right. for a weekly magazine. Which I sort mean, of turned everyone off immediately. They did three issues at that price and then put it back down again. I mean, it was just... Yeah, uttering. As I used to say, imagine the number of things I managed to stop if that one got through. Mm. And yeah. it, that, was, that was one of the breaking points that, uh, of the, my sec, ill-starred second time round there. What was their thinking there? Was that, was that just the move to digital and, you know, putting the magazine to bed? Mm. Like, what, what was all that about? No, I... So how open do I want to be? So there was... Um, I won't name any particular names, but people can read into this what they want. There had been a magazine in the States that had been um, bought up uh, by somebody who was uh, friendly with the owner of Autosport at the time. And he had had great success by massively whacking the price up because it was something that appealed to people with a lot of money. And mm. this was a, uh, an idea that had been towed around in the background for a long time. And there had been a lot of advice that this was a terrible idea. There was a, a big strain between him and the then CEO. And I think in order just to show what a terrible idea it was, he did it. And it was a terrible it idea. Was an astonishingly awful idea. <laughs> um, you, as I said, ended up editor-in-chief. To the, to the layman, what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, it, it always used to confuse people because just about everyone on the magazine would have the title of something editor. So you'd be reports editor or news editor or national editor. It's like, who's the actual editor? It's like, no, it just means you look after that section, right? It's surely not that complicated. Um, so editor-in-chief was someone that edited or was responsible for the entire brand. So um, being editor-in-chief meant, finally, I could get autosport.com and autosport to dance to the same tune. It had been an, one of many incredibly terrible decisions that have made. They bought an outside company called Atlas F1. This is back when Haymarket owned uh, Autosport. And they gave people who were coming from the outside full control of the website. So they, they put this rift and division in between the magazine and the website. And it was just, on every conceivable level, a terrible decision. Mm. And we'll get around to why starting a race. And it's basically because of a, a whole host of time out there of people higher up than me who had no idea what they were doing but it made sense in some weird way in their mind. Oh, no, we'll do this. What? So at one point, we had dual correspondence with just about every series. So we were sending 
somebody to go to the Grand Prix to report for the website and someone to go for the magazine. Yeah. And, and no you play sense. them off. No, so they wouldn't talk to each other. Yeah. They were completely mental. Yeah. Um, so in order to instill some uh, sense into it, I needed to have control of both, and that's become an editor-in-chief allowed me to do that. Right, okay. And presumably, outside of the editorial stuff, is there an element of, of people management and, you know, sort of managing director-type functions as well? People management and sort of strategic business management as well, yeah, much more in there and trying to get secure long-term funding to, yeah. to do things, you know, yeah. crazy, crazy stuff like uh, we should do a, an iPad version of the magazine and... Sure. There, there, were, there were 30 seconds when that was going to be the, uh, the saviour of the print industry. <laughs> I'd have loved to be a fly on the wall in those meetings. Oh, mate, there, were some, there were some absolute corkers that went on <laughs> at that time. Now, Formula E, let's turn our attention there. Mm. So you, you were one of the first people brought into the championship. Um, I remember you and I were in Berlin together, not, uh, well, season nine. Yeah. And, um, and you were sort of looking at it with a, a certain degree of fondness and, and, um, and, and I guess, pride at, mm. at what it's become. When you were first made aware of the series... Um, and it was presented to you, or uh, however it happened in terms of your engagement with Formula E and Alejandro originally. What, what did you think? Did you think, yes, this, this is the future, or was there you know, some other opinion formed? Uh, um, well, first of all, uh, I used to cover a championship called uh, World Series by Nissan and then World Series by Renault, which is a Spanish-run thing by a company called RPM, which was Jaime Algasuari's dad. Mm -hmm. um, great little series, but it meant I spent quite a lot of time in Spain. And these people kept saying, you've got to meet Alejandro Agag, right? He's going to be the new Bernie. You've got to meet this guy. You've got to meet this guy. So what's he doing at that point then? So at this point in time, he's just brokered the, working with uh, Briatore, he's just brokered this massive Spanish TV deal. I'm not sure if he's still, I think he stopped being an MEP at this point mm -hmm. and, he's, and he's working his way into the business of motorsport. But that, that Spanish TV deal for big numbers with Spain at that time was like the first sense that there was commercialization of the market there. And he was, you know, starting to move and shake. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, okay. I mean, if, if people I, I trust are telling me I've got to meet this guy, they should. Um, and then he took over Adrian Campos's uh, GP2 team. And I was invited out to uh, Qatar, where they were launching, because they had this uh, big sponsor called Bawa, big uh, industrial cap, uh, like that. And I met Alejandro there. Uh, and uh, we got on. I really liked him. Uh, you know, I, I really thought that, his vision of how to do things and his way of operating was, yeah, spot on. Um, but obviously, as a journalist at that time, you're naturally a bit cynical. We'd yeah. seen A1GP come and go. We'd seen Super League Formula come and go. We'd seen umpteen people try to launch various versions of touring car series mm. to limited or no success. So another thing coming on the block, you're naturally going to be a little bit sceptical. But one, I knew had this idea that Alejandro knew what he was doing. But then when he got the FIA, got Michelin, got TAG, uh, and uh, there was one other really significant, I can't remember, really significant partners, like, this is going to happen. You don't have that Michelin. Uh, you don't have these people on board, these series, if it's not going to happen. Mm. And you could just sense at the time, at the time certainly if you were a forward-looking person, that the electrification of road cars, particularly in, in the inner cities, was going to have to happen. You know, the quality of air, the, the, the COP, uh, I think it would have been COP20 that had come then, and the way that governments were starting to agree with the way environmental legislation was going to have to go, none of this could be achieved without a significant proportion of the road cars being electrified. And I've always wanted to be... Uh, on the front foot and being involved in what's going to come next rather mm. than what's going to be 
in the past, which is quite ironic that I ended up working on a magazine because I'd started working on websites in 1999. Mm. Um, and it was, you know, I, I, you could tell then that the future was going to be digital. It wasn't, it wasn't going to be paper. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it was auto sport. I wouldn't have done it for anything else. Yeah. Um, anyway, so uh, he was putting all this together. Um, I liked the, what I was hearing and I just, I just dropped him an email and said, uh, how can I get involved? We had, a, we had a meeting, and next year now, I think I was employee 14. Right, okay. Yeah. Very early on. Very, very early on, and it was about uh, seven or eight months before the first race. There'd been one demo run mm-hmm. of the car, I think, at that time. I mean, I, I was putting together all these social media channels and doing the website stuff, and we had, like, three pictures. Yeah. Uh, there, there were slim pickings in yeah. those days, uh, which was, was an interesting challenge. Was it difficult for Alejandro to get those big brands you mentioned on board at that stage? Because when was, when was season one? 2014? So, yeah, 2014, yeah. 2014. So, so at that point, you know, electrification and, and electric mobility is really in its infancy. Was it, was it challenging to get these big brands to buy into the concept of electrified racing? Well, I mean, he would be better place to talk about this than that, but I think they were all given quite uh, generous deals, mm. put it that way. But he's a very convincing person when you speak to him. And these were people who wanted to be associated with the next thing that was going to be, you know, relevant to people's lives. So um, while he did brilliantly to get them involved, um, they weren't they weren't paying Formula One money. Yeah, yeah. And do you think, so he's now obviously moved on to other things. He's involved with E1 as well, isn't he, with Ronnie Yeah, extremely. Yeah, yeah, extremely. He, uh, he, st- he, um, he still goes to a, most, if not all, of the Formula E races. Yeah, he was there in Berlin. I saw yeah. him up on the podium. But it, is, that, is that vision he's got for electric mobility, is, is that going to find success elsewhere? You know, things like Extremes have mixed, mixed reviews, really. E1, no one really knows, but there are some big players involved in terms of team owners and things like that. It, it, do you think he's going to find... Um, success similar to that in other series? Well, I think the interesting thing is that um, Extreme is going hydrogen, which I think is a really smart move. So he's got sort of feet in both camp. Mm. I don't necessarily understand the concept of the series in, in, the, same, in the way that I instantly got Formula E. I instantly understood what it could be, which is why you know I host a podcast there and sometimes Sam and I are a bit critical of the championship. That's only because I've, I could see what it could be. Yeah. When, when it's not there, it, it frustrates me. Um, Having a foot in the hydrogen camp, I think, is really smart because it's, it is likely that there are going to be these two competing technologies. And yeah. I think there's probably room for both of them. I know nothing about boat racing, I've got to be honest. There used to be a British um, powerboat, no, World Powerboat Grand Prix in Bristol that we go to as a kid. It was exceptionally dangerous. <laughs> I remember that. Um, so I, d- I don't really know. But I think Carvin Anish is the guy who uh, is on the forefront of technology change in most sport is a good place to be. Mm. Now, um, you've obviously seen Formula E evolve over the years. You're still very involved with it. What do you make of it now? Do you think it has this longevity as a series? And, you know, manufacturers come and go, but it it seems like it's heading in the right direction. And while we can't compare it to Formula One, in the long term, do you think Formula E will gradually start to steal some of that F1 audience? Before Andrew answers that one, uh, a very quick interruption to the podcast to remind you to go and check out paulos.com. Paul has very kindly sponsored this season of the podcast. His work is amazing. He's done sculptures of James Hunt, of Nicky Lauder, of Bruce McLaren. He's done incredible paintings of Ayrton Senna and all sorts of interesting people. He's well worth looking at. We've just run a competition with a giveaway of one of his original Senna 
paintings on the canvas. It's brilliant. We're going to be announcing who the winner of that is in the next day or two. Unfortunately, the first winner of it never got back to our emails. Um, so that is moved on to the second person in the queue. But do check him out, paulos.com. You can look at all of his artwork there, how to get hold of it, how to, how to commission your own pieces. Go and check it out, paulos.com. Paul, once again, a massive thank you for joining us on the show. I'm not sure... I'm not sure it'll steal an audience from Formula One. I think the way that Formula One is positioned is a sort of pinnacle of sport. People like it when there's a the best thing, you know, whether it's the Champions League or the World Cup or whatever it is, various the Olympics or whatever. People like there to be something. These are the best. And I think Formula One's position there is pretty much secure unless something goes spectacularly wrong. Um, that doesn't mean that Formula E... Uh, can't thrive and survive where it is. I met the new CEO, uh, Jeff Dodds, in Portland. Um, he know, I think he's got a very good handle on the, the thing that needs to be done. And they've got two um, big issues, and that's uh, creating a, a stable calendar and, you know, go, and allowing a fan base to build by going back to cities repeated times rather than just going once mm. uh, and then it moving on somewhere else. Um, you, it's very hard to build a, a, a solid fan base that way. And having a, a really strong, thriving TV package so you know when it's on and where it's on. And that's one of my favorite rants is, you know, trying to find it when it's, oh, is it live on the uh, Channel 4 website or no? Or what channel is it on today? You know, yeah. you, you'd never have that problem with Formula One. You know when it's on, where it's on. Yeah. Uh, and it starts on that time and, and you get all the stuff around it and that's solid. For me, seeing it in Berlin um, Live. That was the, uh, weirdly the first race I've been to in Formula E, um, despite having worked on it for a, for a, a number of seasons. And I was really bowled over by it because on TV I'd always struggled a little bit to to get it, and I, I struggled to get through a race. But watching it live in Berlin, it really changed things for me. And it, it it's it, it was such an exciting race, both of them. They're over three hundred overtakes, which some are critical of. Yeah. Which, which I think, you know, whatever, you know, it's, it's racing, you know, I, I, I want to see overtakes and, you know, it's, it, I guess the challenging thing for it is that the, the cream doesn't always rise to the top, does it? There's an element of luck involved. Well, the, the, that's certainly been the case till they changed the qualifying format this year. And I think that's why this year's championship, there were some issues with the reliability of the car at the beginning of the season. Yeah. But I don't think ultimately that they played a defining role in the championship. But having that, the new qualifying format, Brilliant. Went went to the final. You know, the three best guys were the top three in the championship, and that's all you want to see, really. Uh, and super competitive. Um, they, the manufacturers that are in it at the moment, they've got a big decision coming up about whether they're going to stick around for Gen Four soon. But I hope that um, those two problems with the calendar and the TV audience are resolved. And if they do do that, why leave? Right? They're they're all selling electric uh, yeah. vehicles in yeah. their range. You know, why leave? What, you, what do you expect from the Gen 4 car? Because it's already, I mean, this, this current generation, Gen 3, is quick, isn't it? I yeah. mean, it's, it's a, it, top speeds are getting up there. What can we expect from the new one? I think you'll, you'll see much more of the uh, technology being deployed. So uh, they'll have those active charging and the race that will add a technical element to it, you know, rather than just going offline to pick up um, uh, the, the, uh, the racing boost, you'll actually be able to... Um, charge the car up as well. We'll start seeing uh, all the axles being used uh, to deploy the power as well. Um, and I think that that's the, the fine line that, that we always uh, walked along there. And that's having technological relevance to where the development of uh, road electric cars are going and keeping the prices under, con uh, the budgets under control. Mm. Uh, I, th I, think, I think Gen 4 will have to 
they have another big step forward in terms of the technology that's deployed there. Now, we had Jake Dennis, Nick Cassidy, Mitch Evans, one, two, and three in the championship, but who was your standout performer from season nine? Like I said, they were clearly the best three. I think Dennis um, deserved it, um, but any of them would have been worthy champions, uh, and, and that was just great to see, you know, the when they were battling on track, you know, it was, it was that real sense that these are the guys. They were so far ahead of where their teammates were. It was, it was phenomenal in cars that were all basically the same. Yeah. Um, and that really just goes to show the quality of the drivers. Now, looking ahead to season 10, now, as I mentioned, Formula E can be hard to predict. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, I'm going to, whatever I say now is definitely going to be wrong. I, I'm recording this <laughs> and I'm going to replay it in 10 months' time and see where we end up. What are your predictions for season 10? Who should we look out for? I'm really, really intrigued and excited to see how that Jaguar lineup of having Evans and Cassidy in the same team. I mean, this is, they're much more matey than this. So it's not Prof Senna in terms of their characters, but in terms of their status within the sport. They're yeah. doing, putting the two, it's, it's putting Hamilton and Verstappen in the same team. I mean, it's going to, be, only one of them can win, yeah. right? And they're, they're going to do well to both come out of it with that sort of same cheerful, uh, laid-back personality they've got now. It was the Kiwi way, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Cassidy, by all accounts, should have won season nine. Took his foot off the gas a little bit in the, in the last... He was, he was a bit unlucky, but I, no, I, I think Dennis ultimately drove the better. Yeah, uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Uh, two Kiwis. It- There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's one for Sean Statman Kelly uh, on the Race Podcast to see if there's ever been a Kiwi lineup like. Has it been a Kiwi all Kiwi yeah, lineup before? Um, Bruce McLaren and Denny Holm must have been oh, together okay. at McLaren at some uh, in, the, in the late sixties. I would, yeah, they definitely were. Now let's turn our attention to the race. So we had Sam Smith on this show not long ago, and he hinted at being Vida Bead <laughs> over several beers during the formation of the race media. I mean, I've got no idea what he's talking about. I can never claim to have been Vida Bead, although I have been Matt Whittemed a few times. Well, funny, when, when we had our chat, neither of us were drinking, no. so we had um, four very non-alcoholic beers. Yeah, quite yeah. nice, though. The, the Brewdog one. Yeah. yeah, That's the best one I've found so far. Um, I did a month of no alcohol recently, and to be honest, I'm never going to do that again. I didn't. <laughs> looking back, I didn't enjoy myself at all. I didn't feel any better either. You know, all yeah, this. You're not going to feel better. What is the point? Uh, what, exactly. Yeah. You know, I felt tired and depressed, so I've, I'm probably drunk now. Um, but the race media, yeah. it, it's it's come on leaps and bounds in a very short period of time, really. Um, how did it come about? I mean, it, Sam gave us some some hints about you know chatting it through with you and, and, and your ideas and vision 
for, for the business. But how did it go from an idea in your head? And when was that very first idea? Yeah, this is um, a, a long, a very long way to get to, to where we ultimately ended up. So the initial genesis of it, arguably, uh, was with uh, co-founder Darren Cox, uh, back in 2013, oh wow! When uh, I went on a trip with him when he was at Nissan to Bathurst, where they were running cars for the first time, and then to Fuji, where the Zeod uh, was demonstrating for the first time. And one drunken night in downtown Tokyo, sitting on upturned beer crates, we <laughs> talked very loosely very, very loosely, about doing something together. Um, over the course of that time, I was, I was not long, uh, six months away from joining Formula E at that point in time, and I didn't, who knew how long I was going to be there, I ended up doing the first three seasons, so I was there just over, just over four years, I think. Really, the, the catalyst then was going back to what had become Motorsport Network, who had taken over uh, Autosport, and that I can say without fear of contradiction that I did not enjoy my time back there. Uh, as one of the more frustrating moments in my career. And that really, uh, like I said earlier about poor decisions being taken above me, that this was that on sort of a titanic scale. It's like, I can do this better, right? That all, the, all these terrible decisions that are being made that don't need to be made. Mm-hmm. Um, the way in which editorial was of the lowest priority there um, was nothing short of infuriating. So, uh, and then... Uh, Darren had uh, an investor at the time and uh, uh, we had a a couple of interesting meetings and finance was put in place and I uh, put my stake in the ground and we set the race up about three weeks before the pandemic and caused all global motorsport to be cancelled, which was one of the more interesting uh, challenges that we've had. But with hindsight, may have been a benefit in some way with all the, the, the rising of the sim racing and all the stuff that you had to adapt to? Well, I mean, that was the amazing thing. And I love the sort of got lemons, make lemonade thing. So uh, Matt Whittam and I were in uh, Melbourne to uh, host a launch party for the race, which we did at the Stoke House on um, Thursday night. Uh, but literally the day, of, no, was it that day or the day before? I think it was the Wednesday I'd just gone in and collected my pass and I got a WhatsApp saying three Haas and three McLaren mechanics with suspected COVID. And I was like, oh my God, we know, we know where it goes from here. But luckily, the Thursday night, everyone except for Haas, who I've always had a very good relationship with, so that in many ways that was okay. Mm. Uh, everyone came. We, we had four uh, big tables there and three of them were completely filled with members of all the teams. So we were able to explain to everyone who we were and announce our place in the world. And then... I didn't bother going in on the Friday, but the next day was when there was, what, 50,000 people queuing into an event that we knew was never going to open. I mean, a ridiculous state of affairs. Uh, while we were over there, um, uh, at one point we took over a Chinese restaurant as we were updating. We, had, we turned it into a little media centre. We had our three journalists there with the stuff feeding in. I just kept on sending food and stuff over to them. It was, a, it was brilliant to see it in work, you know, yeah. at work. And it's like, yeah, this is it, right? We, we are there. Um, back in the UK, Darren was busy putting together the, the first of what became the All-Star Esports series. And on Sunday, when the Grand Prix should have been on, we were running a sim race and we had Max Verstappen and Felix Rosenquist and a load of the world's top esport racers. And, and that became the genesis of what went on to having the, uh, the All-Star series with 
Fernando Alonso, Sebastian Vessel and Jensen Button and Mario Andretti and Emerson Fittipaldi and the world's greatest WhatsApp group. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I bet, yeah. yeah. I mean, a bit of a masterstroke, really, to, to pivot that quickly. But was there, oh, a, was there a, any moment in Australia where you thought, fuck, like, we've, we've got this investment together, everything's going great, the pandemic hits, what am I going to do? Over there then, because we didn't really know, and it was all going to be, oh, it's only going to be six weeks, we're just gonna, and it'll all be fine. Yeah. What, when it really struck was it was like mid-April, and I went on Google Analytics, and there were about 15 people on the website. And that was really like, what? I can't report back on this. You know, that, that's, there's about 35p's worth of revenue coming in there. Well, yeah. are we, we going to pay everyone at the end of the month? <laughs> Panic. Yeah. Panic stations. It, but really it, it makes it even more re- remarkable now, though. And what are the numbers going through the website now? Oh, about one and a half million, 1.7 million a month. Something like that. It's amazing, isn't it? When you, yeah. you think it's got to that stage. But how, how does it go for, for people listening who might, might have an interest in you know, doing a similar thing, whether it you know, be motorsport, sport, you know, whatever, without giving away your secrets? But how do you go from 15 people on a website <laughs> to several million with you know, okay, you've got some, some backing, but you haven't got unlimited pots of cash to do digital marketing. No, I think, I'm not sure we've actually spent any money at all on marketing. So it was all done on word of mouth, um, having, uh, having quality SEO, but really it's all been based on the quality of the content. So anytime there's a big breaking news story, we'll do the news story, but it's where we take it from there. Yeah. It's the story behind the headlines, as we describe it, the analysis of it, to a depth and to a breadth that no one else is doing. And when you establish a reputation for that, then, you know, it's a sort of field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you've expanded since then. You've, you've bought other brands. You bought WTF1. Yep. What, what was the thinking behind the WTF1 acquisition? Uh, oh, well, so just for the record, we bought WTF1 on the 1st of April 2020, right? Because I know there was some nonsense after Matt and Tommy left that people thought that we'd bought it like at the beginning of this year. We bought it at the beginning or midway through 2020, invested heavily in it, uh, brought in Katie to run the website, uh, brought in a, much, a load of resources in terms of creating a merchandise, a couple of video editors, and we tripled the size of that brand. Uh, there were about 350,000 YouTube subs when we bought it and took over a million in that, in that time. Mm. Um, so the thinking was, uh, the race is designed for people who already know. You know. They're bought into it, so they want to know more. WTF1, low barrier of entry, don't really need to know what's going on in Formula One. That very quickly became corrupted into the drive to survive audience, but that, it, that wasn't really the, the basis of it then. It, it became that, but it was just for new fans. There needs to be a way in that's fun, not taking itself too seriously. I mean, that was the thing with Autosport. Man, it was hardcore. Yeah, you, you needed to, it, it, I've read it sort of cover to cover to understand what was going on, to yeah. you know, who these people were and what their relevance was. And, you know, there's definitely room for that in the world. And hopefully that, that will continue because you can't dumb everything down. Yeah. Um, but it meant, and we knew um, within about three months overplaying that the crossover audience between the two brands was 7 8%. So basically nothing, which meant, great, we've got two bites of the cherry here. We've got your new young social first fan, and then we've got your more serious, committed, slightly older, but not that much older, uh, fan in, into, the, into the race. So... For advertisers, if you want to speak to either of those or both, there you go. Yeah, and it's obviously been challenging, Matt and Tommy leaving. Yeah. How do you look at that whole transitional period now that a few months have passed? Yeah, look, it's uh, I, when they, they resigned in, uh, in October, 
and said they wanted to go off and do their own thing. And as I said, I, I knew only too well. Like Tommy, he's been doing it for 11 years. I don't think anyone should do anything for 11 years. It's, uh, it's, it's not healthy. It's good to go and challenge yourself to go and do something else. Um, and I don't completely su support it. I, I deeply wish that they um, hadn't launched their brand while they were still working for us. I mean, I, I think I'm uh, absolutely right to be annoyed about that. Yeah. You know, they were still employees when they went live with P1. I mean, that's just not on really. But I wish them all the success in the world. I'm not, you know, it's their thing. Do they very? Matt in particular is very good at what he does, uh, and this and has a huge fan base as a result. Fair play to him. Now you're building quite the empire under the race media. You've got the the awards, um, driver database, WTF1 talent, your most recent um, business unit. Um, what else do you want to bring under this umbrella? Yeah, it's a good question, and uh, there's two active conversations at the moment, and one of them's under NDA, so I can't really talk about that. But um, it's important to uh, grow in ways that make sense. So rather than just buy four or five things that are effectively the same, it's like looking at the audience you've got and what else might they be interested in? What else might we be able to uh, boost through the, the audience that we've got? Um, I think uh, without uh, saying too much, there are a couple of areas where we're weak in terms of the skill sets and whatever we've got. So anything that can bolster that. But hopefully um, you'll see over the... Uh, the rest of the year, maybe maybe the new year, that we're, we're growing again. Uh, we launched a Brazilian um, or Portuguese language version of the YouTube channel. I've got another one of those lined up. Excellent. Um, so, yeah, world domination, basically. I love it. Would you say you're a risk taker? Um, well, I don't know. I mean, everything's quantified, isn't it? So I wouldn't say I was... Uh, particularly risky i like to think that i'd weighed the odds up first and that things were in their favor i just i'm not i don't shoot from the hip right i i, I like data i mm -hmm. like quantifying things and i like i like the what with glenn who's the editor-in-chief and i would like to talk about the white spaces right where where aren't things taking place and can we feel that yeah have you always been that way or is that something you've learned um i think i might have always been that way unwittingly Think just thinking back on how I acted back at school and stuff, but I would I definitely wouldn't have known it at the time. Yeah. But I I've I've never really just like going along with the crowd. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting because because some people you know they le learn through their mistakes and and get to their pinnacle by honing their skills over many years of making errors and learning from them. But you feel you're more in the sort of oh I've made a lot of mistakes. Don't get me wrong. I'm not I'm not saying I'm, I definitely don't always back the right horse. But what I do. I, I'm not comfortable with just doing what everyone else is doing because to me that just seems like... The, I don't like the least path of resistance because it just seems lazy, yeah. in, in, either physically or intellectually. And the latter, I'm just not comfortable with at all. I, I, ha, I like to challenge myself uh, in problem-solving or, you know, if there's not a challenge, I genuinely I don't see what the point is. And are you, would, you put, would you say you're one of those people that will work very hard for multiple hours a day or do you find yourself having a sort of more efficient way of working? I wish I was a bit more efficient like that, but I, I'm, 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 I'm sure my, uh, my partner would, would much prefer it. But I'm sort of, I'm always on because yeah. I never know when I might have an idea and do yeah. something. I, I, can, I can happily have a fallow period where I don't do anything for an hour, but to me that's work because I'm thinking about something. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to switch off sometimes. Yeah. What about sort of mentorship and coaching? Have you, have you just learned by yourself or has there ever been anyone that you've looked up to and, and gone to for advice? No, I wish, that, I wish there had been, to be honest with you. I wish that um, 
especially uh, at Autosport when I, um, when I was given the editorship. I wish there would, had been someone that sort of was there to take me through, but you, you really were just sort of chucked in at the deep end mm -hmm. and sink or swim. I didn't know what a page budget was, and yeah. I was given it. It's like, what's this? Well, that's how many pages you got for the year. Did you find resistance from any of the older lot? Because you, you were younger than a number of people you were, you were managing, right? Uh, the single biggest problem with working at Autosport then was that everyone had a, a, an idea of how it should have been done. And anyone who had worked there before had an, a much better idea of how to do it than you did, right? But just because it worked in the 1970s wasn't going to mean it was going to work in the 2000s. And dealing with their subtle digs, or sometimes not so subtle digs, and hardly ever to your face, uh, was incredibly annoying. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. Right, Formula One. And now, it, we all know, everyone knows, you know, we're sick of talking about um, whether Formula One is just really boring now with Max dominating, or it's amazing, you know, let's appreciate him for what he is. Which camp are you in? Oh, so I, re I regret to this day not enjoying the 1988 season for what it was at the time. You know, I, I, I wasn't old enough and mature enough to appreciate that this was a once-in-a-generational uh, thing, especially then you had the two best drivers of their era in the best car going out of hammer and tongs. So I resolved myself that next time that happened, so when Schumacher was dominating in 02 and 04, to appreciate it for what it was. And that was the, the perfect confluence of the best team with the best driver, with the best tyres, with, with whatever the factors were that brought that together. And it passes. Mm. They all pass. You know, the Roman Empire didn't go on forever. So um, um, it's hard to get, you know, the hairs stand up on the back of your neck as someone who is winning every race, seemingly at will. You have to absolutely admire. And it's not just, you know, Max is driving phenomenally, but you couldn't, he couldn't do that if you put him in an Alpine, right? He's, he, he wouldn't have won a race this season. Mm. And it's a testimony to all those hundreds of people who have worked together to make that car. And you've got to appreciate it. There's no point in, knock, in knocking it. Do you think that's your appreciation of that do you think that's a generational thing or a demographics thing because you know you see with a short form video that seems to be taking over all the time at the moment and this, and pot potentially attention span of younger generations do you think this kind of dominance will continue well is this kind of dominance going to be pleasing the younger audience as much as it, it's ple as much as it's pleasing you I'm not saying it's pleasing me. I'd much rather there was a fight for every win. Yeah. I, I enjoyed Monza for that reason. I think if you came in off the back of enjoying Drive to Survive, because that was the only thing that was on during the pandemic, and Formula One did a brilliant, amazing job in getting racing back going when most other sports weren't. You know, remember watching football when there were no crowd there? Yeah, yeah. It wasn't particularly, uh, uh, particularly good. And then that we had a once-in-a-lifetime season with 21. Now, if the first you experience you had a Formula One is 2021... I can understand why you don't like what it is now. Right? And, I, and I don't blame people if they're zoning out and say, well, this is actually isn't why I'm getting bought into. I, I thought everything was like that, where it goes down to the final race of the season and people bitch and moan about it for time immemorial. Um, what we're going through now is, is almost as rare, you know, but it, it does happen. You know, every now and again, a, a team steals a march on everyone else and they dominate. Can, in modern day sport, like you say, where everything is down to a 45 second, 60 second highlight video, can it survive that? I'm sure it will. Um, I go, I'm imagining there, are, there is a churn of, of new fans that are coming, but if you're not prepared to commit to something that's a little bit challenging, then, you know, shut your door on the way out. Yeah. Now, 2026, we've got some significant changes coming. Um, the current 1.6 litre V6 turbocharged power unit will become more sustainable, more efficient. 
Uh, it'll have more electric regeneration, more oomph from the electric power. Um, we've got manufacturers with the likes of Audi, Ford with Red Bull and so on. How confident are you that with these changes to the power units, that F1 will remain exciting wheel-to-wheel -wheel racing in the pinnacle of motorsport? So you can play this back again, right? Yeah. So next year will be better than this. Confident with this yeah. one. Next yeah. year will be better than this year, right? There will be, I imagine, Mercedes, maybe Aston, possibly McLaren at the rate they're going, and hopefully Ferrari will win or challenge for race wins. Now, 2025, so the last year the current regulations, will be amazing. Every car on the grid will be a Red Bull clone, uh, and it will just be down to which power unit suits that particular type of track or the various setups or drivers that they've got. And then all the rules will change. And somebody will do a better job of someone else in 26, and we'll be right back to where we start. It might be Red Cyclical, Bull. Cyclical, isn't it? Yep, it might not. It might be Mercedes. might even be Ferrari. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that's where we'll be. And why have we changed all the rules again? And I won't know the answer to that. Yeah, I mean, it, it happens, doesn't it? Every five, six years, they change the rules and that divergence happens in the year before and then we go again. There's no other sport that changes the rules as much as Formula One does, right? If you took um, one of those, uh, Stanley Matthews or something, and plonked him in on that, I mean, you obviously wouldn't believe the quality of the pitches and all that, but you'd understand the game, right? God, good luck explaining VAR to him and what the offside rule is now <laughs> or what handball is. But the fundamentals of the game, he would get. If you brought in uh, Jim Clark or something into Formula One, it's, it's, the cars, they bear no relation to the, what yeah. he drove back then. That's not to say he wouldn't be quick, but it, it's just a completely different game. Now. Yeah. What about the, the, the media side of, of motorsport, particularly Formula One? It moves so quickly now. We've got new platforms like Threads coming on, and obviously the race in WTF1 jumped on that pretty yeah. much. 100,000 followers on WTF1 yeah. on Threads. Yeah. I mean, Threads seems to be doing some, some good stuff. People like it. We're, we've got... Web 3.0 coming around. Um, where are we headed as an industry from a, a digital perspective, do you think? Well, I think um, the timing of launching uh, WTF1 talent uh, has played out nicely for us because I think we're heading much more towards uh, the individual person, the personality uh, taking uh, precedence over brands. Just to explain quickly WTF1 talent so for some context. Yeah, so we, uh, while I was looking for the, uh, the new um, WTF1 team uh, when after um, Matt and Tommy uh, announced they were leaving, I went down quite a few rabbit holes of trying to find uh, suitable uh, talent to, to come in and replace them. And it was clear that there was a lot of people out there who uh, loved motorsport and wanted to do something in it, but didn't, weren't necessarily sort of... Uh, being guided in a way that was, was going to help them to achieve their goals. So uh, that's where we met and I brought you in to, to run that side of things. So the idea is that we have content creators that, have, uh, that are based all over the world, so uh, wherever the brands want to activate, but also that have a whole host of different interests that are, you know, align next to their interest in Formula One. So whether that's into uh, the engineering side of things or luxury travel and, 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 and all, uh, all sorts of, of horses for courses, and it seems to me that that's where um, Formula One and the media are going. They're, they're, there's some lip service paid to the traditional uh, media uh, and the, the specialist media in particular because, you know, the team bosses still read it and it's important to them, you know, what, what's being quoted uh, on the race or, or whatever. But in terms of the sponsor activations, they seem to be much more interested in talking to people outside of the traditional F1 fandom. Uh, and I think that's the way we're seeing a media go where where um traditional brands and and uh, 
they're going to have to work much harder um, to differentiate themselves to what they're saying, um, especially as we'll see the rise of AI in, uh, in terms of content creation. There's, there's a chance that you just end up with a, a big uh, vanilla ball of uh, everything being effectively the same. And, and I sort of see that now with, you know, somebody says something and everyone's just jumping on the, the quote. I mean, that, that's... But it really is a very low form of journalism, if, it, if it's even journalism at mm -hmm. all. You know, it, the idea is to take a couple of a contrasting points of view and try and find the truth in between that, rather than just you know stoking up something that someone yeah. said for some clicks. Um, so yes, it's an interesting time, and as you say, the speed at which is moving is unbelievable. I mean, I'm always trying to keep a, on top of what Web three means for us. Haven't got that answer just yet. I've got a couple of ideas. Um, and that might be the, the next thing that we sort of get into. We're not going to be uh, launching our own token. Don't worry. There's not going to be a rest <laughs> token anytime soon. No, no, no. no, no we're going to start trading. No. Oh, no. Different world. Yeah. Now you've you've worked both sides. You've worked in a, in a world with social media and a world without it. Mm. Do you have a preference? Uh, I'm probably showing my age here, but I'm not. I don't. I mean, I'm on it, right? Because everyone's on it, and I'm on it far too often. And I'm I'm there, you know, casually enjoying a podcast. And next thing I'm I'm looking at what used to be Twitter. It's like, why am I doing this? Right? <laughs> have, have I really not got the attention span to be able to just sit on a journey for ten minutes? No, right? no and, one and does. And I haven't. And it's it's, it's outrageous, but. Am I getting anything from it? Not really. Yeah. Um, and it used to be, I was a really old bastard now, but it used to be, and that's what I liked about the print thing, right? When it was done, it was done, right? When we put the magazine to bed at um, Tuesday lunchtime, that was it. Yeah. yeah. Until we started the next one on first thing Thursday morning. So we all used to go out on Tuesday night. It was great Tuesday night. And everyone could sleep it off on Wednesday. And then we'd start it all again. Yeah, yeah. There's no turning off now no, at all. Never stops. No. Never stops. Um, before we come on to our final three, a couple more for you. Favourite era of Formula One? Well, I think every, everyone's favourite era comes from the time when they were young and uh, being sucked into something. And it, everything's new when you're exploring it. So for me, it's the turbo era of the mid-80s, you know, 1,500 horsepower cars, flames spitting out the back, um, Prost PK, Mansell Senna, you know, all, all of that. I absolutely loved it. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And now, when you look back at your body of work, whether it's autosport, um, the race, WTF1, whatever it might be, are you happy? Would you have done anything differently? Uh, I have to say no regrets. Um, there's, uh, God, a million things I would do differently. Absolutely a million things. But... All of, the thing, all of the mistakes I made ultimately led to where I am now, and I'm quite pleased with where I am now. So, you know, I wouldn't, you know was it a butterfly effect? I wouldn't want to go back and change something in case it, it, didn't, it didn't end up with uh, where things are now. Well, maybe I'm not being ambitious enough. Maybe it could have, I could have been even more <laughs> successful. I don't know. Um, but I think, it's, I think it's best not to dwell on your mistakes, just try and learn from them. Talking of mistakes, what are you crap at? Oh, drawing. I'm awful. Really? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm spectacularly non-artistic. All oh, right. Yeah. Do you like drawing, though? I, I like sketching stuff, yeah. Just badly? I'm just some really rubbish at it. Oh, frustrating, yeah. isn't and it? And you see people. I, well, I went down to um, uh, Cornwall a couple of weeks ago to go and see a friend of mine, and we were sitting on this uh, bench overlooking the ocean, and this man just suddenly picked up, his, and he drew a picture of this woman that was on the beach in about five minutes. Brilliant. Yeah. And I was just in awe of his uh, ability to just do this, whereas, like, I'd done it, it would just have been horrendous. I mean, it, at best, it would have been, like, something Picasso would have... <laughs> <laughs> would have but unintentionally great. 
I'm quite. Ex- I'm going to make you draw something. I want to see you draw so an F1 bad car. Um, we're, we're being ushered out of our meeting room, so I'm going to flick forward to, to our uh, our final three, which are brought to us by our show sponsor, Mr. Paul Oz. So head to pauloz.com to check out his amazing art and sculptures. And we're actually announcing a winner of the uh, competition we did because the first winner didn't reply to our email. Um, so we're picking a second person to get Paul's painting of Ayrton Senna, which we'll release on socials later this week. Andrew, what's got you excited at this very moment? Oh, I'm excited to see his art. How much better it is than mine. It's very, very good. <laughs> that was a nice segue, wasn't right, it? Yeah, perfect. Um, okay, art. You're excited about art. We'll, we'll, we'll leave that one there. Um, how much of your success do you put down to luck and right place, right time? And how much do you put down to sheer hard work and graft? Uh, I mean, there's a, a has been element of luck in everything, but I have worked amazingly hard. Like, especially when we're doing auto sport, I didn't have a single bank holiday off for... 14, 15 years. I've worked oh. 30 plus weekends a year for however many years yeah. um, and a day in lieu was that. So, um, yeah, if you're not prepared to work hard, then be prepared to succeed. Final one for you. It doesn't have to be motorsport related. This could be anything and as deep or as, as shallow as you like. Go what, on. what are you scared of? Yeah, uh, well, <laughs> my... my, uh, my Parents, for whatever reason, when I was about seven or eight years old, when it was on TV, showed me Jaws. So I was terrified oh. of sharks for a very, very long time. Fascinated by them now, but genuinely, genuinely one. terrified. You of should sharks. watch. Uh, there's a film called The Shallow. Yeah, I've seen. Oh, yeah, I've seen them all. I love Bloody them. Yeah, I know. That freaked me out. Yeah. I mean, obviously not the Meg. That's just ridiculous. I don't but. quite look forward to seeing that. There's the second yeah, one. Yeah, but it's not scary. Right? It's not scary now. But yeah. Yeah, it's a big shark. Um, well, listen, it's been a pleasure talking to you and finding out more about you. And uh, I've I'm, I'm definitely got some ammunition now um, that I can replay in, uh, in the months to come. But um, for now, thanks so much for joining us on the Motormouth Podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Motormouth Podcast. Do make sure you give us a follow on our socials, Twitter at Motormouth underscore, Instagram at Motormouth underscore official, and Facebook, just search Motormouth. You can also download the Motormouth app where you can get exclusive video content from MMTV, create your own social profile to interact with other fans, and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy. We're also proud to be supporting the Brain Tumor Charity too, so make sure you check the links in the podcast description to find out how you can help cure brain tumours quicker. Don't forget to like, subscribe and review. And until next time, you've been listening to the Motormouth Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.